Last Sunday, we looked at the first part of what some believe to be an early Christian hymn. It's found in Philippians 2, beginning in verse number 6. It's written in the form of verse, not prose. And it illustrates what Paul means by having the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, he writes, which was also in Christ Jesus. It began with humility, which led to obedience, even to death on a cross. And not simply death, but death by crucifixion. So I mentioned last Sunday, some have asked the question, why did Jesus have to die? This is the wrong question to ask. A better question is, why was Jesus crucified? See, the emphasis needs to be not simply that he died on his death, but on the manner of his death. So I mentioned it again last week. None of the four Gospels tell us anything about the physical suffering of Jesus during his passion. This is extraordinary if you think about it, because oftentimes during Holy Week, Good Friday, we think of his suffering, but instead they focus on something else. See, if it's just a death, if the death of Jesus is simply a death, even a painful death, a tortured death, then we will lose something very, very crucial, very important. You see, crucifixion was the way that he was put to death. You think of the first martyr, Stephen. Stephen was stoned to death. That's usually how Jews executed people. But Jesus was crucified. It was a form of execution specifically designated to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. It is the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. It was intended to degrade the person, not simply make them suffer, but to also be degraded. But last week, we only looked at the first part of the hymn, verses 6, 7, and 8. And the hymn continues in verse number 9. So if you look at this, Philippians 2, verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One might say, how does this fit in with the first part of the hymn? Um, How does it fit in with what Paul just said? What is the connection? Um, Just an aside here, it sounds very similar to what Peter said on the day of Pentecost when he preached. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I think oftentimes we gloss over this, you know, you know, you, you killed him. No, they crucified him. The one you killed in the most humiliating way possible, whom you sought to dehumanize and degrade. God has made both Lord and Christ. There is a connection because if you look at the beginning of verse number nine, you have the word therefore. Um, so it it's comes to a conclusion. It's based on previous information. Therefore, we can conclude certain things. And what is the nature of the, of the connection? Is it simply an antecedent? Okay, verses 6, 7, 8. Therefore, now we have 9, 10, and 11. Or is there a relationship? Is there a cause? What, because of what happened in verses 6, 7, and 8, we now have what happens in the second part of the hymn. I don't think it's either or. It's both and. 
Paul's trying to make two points. First of all, to assert that God affirmed the life and death of Jesus, that in fact we have a perfect life, we have one who was obedient. And secondly, there has to be an application. He wants to reassure the Philippians that Jesus is now the exalted Lord and sovereign over the entire universe. He is Lord over all, even over Caesar. You may remember what I said about uh, Philippi. It was settled with retired soldiers from the legions. So they were very much attached to the Roman way of saying, of doing things. And one of the things that all Romans had to say is, Caesar is Lord. And now Paul tells them, actually, Jesus is Lord. God has exalted him to a higher place, to the highest place. What we see in verse number nine is not the result of reward. Okay, that's important. It isn't like Jesus did a good thing so he gets rewarded. It is, in fact, a vindication. We'll see this as we go along. He is the one who emptied himself. He's the one who took on the form of a servant, who humbled himself, someone who was obedient even to death on a cross. It is vindication. This is important for us, okay? Because we find this principle in Scripture about us, about human beings humbling themselves in order that they might be exalted. Matthew 23, 12, For whoever exalts himself will be humble, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James chapter 4, verse 10, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up or exalt you in due time. You will notice that God gives grace to the humble, that he might lift them up. So it's not a reward. It is a vindication. Those who see themselves as they truly are, sinners who are saved by God's grace, will be, in fact, Lifted up, they will be exalted. In the case of Jesus, the vindication is seen in four things. God has exalted him to the highest place. And Paul uses a word here in Greek that has at the beginning, hyper. So it's like, it's really up there. Okay. He is not saying, however, that Jesus is exalted to a position higher than he had before. But rather that God has exalted him to the highest place possible. Secondly, that God has given him a name that is above every name. What does this mean? Does this mean that the name of Jesus is, is, is exalted? Because in the next phrase, he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So it could be that Paul means that the name of Jesus given to him in his incarnation now takes on significance that excels all other names. That's possible, but I think Paul has something else in mind. The name that is described here that is above every name is the name we find in the Old Testament, the name of God. In the Old Testament, the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, was considered so sacred that rather than writing the name of God, they would write Adonai, that is, the Lord. So when Jesus is called the Lord, okay, he's called Lord, it means he is God. 
just a side note, we've seen this before. If you read Paul's writings, whenever Jesus or whenever Paul speaks of Jesus, it is Lord. When he speaks of God, it is the Father. When he speaks of the Spirit, he is known as the Spirit. The third thing of vindication is that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is actually an Old Testament passage. We associate it with Philippians too, but this is actually taken from Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. What Paul has done is he has substituted the name of Jesus. So where in Isaiah it says, to me, here we see, you know, that is to God. Here it is to the Lord Jesus. Who is the Savior? Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. This is Jesus. He is the Savior. People are to turn to him for salvation. Peter and John told the Sanhedrin, salvation is found in no one else For there is no other name given under heaven, given to men, by which we must be saved. One of the keys to salvation from the human side is humility and obedience. You might say, wait a minute, you said one, and then you mentioned two things. Well, they are, in fact, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If one humbles himself or herself, This is demonstrated in obedience. And if one is obedient, it is a demonstration of humility. Bowing the knee is a sign of respect, of homage. It is as much as to say, you are my Lord. I bow my knee to acknowledge your position and my position. Just a side note, again, because of political affairs and football and all the sports things, you know, people kneeling during the national anthem, it's taken on a whole different thing. It's taken on almost a sign of disrespect. Well, not so in Scripture. To bow the knee is to show respect. Every Christian is a person who has bowed his or her knee. They have put their faith in Christ. But Paul says every knee will bow. adds to what we find in Isaiah 45, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In heaven, it refers to the heavenly beings, the angels, as well as demons. Those on earth, including those who are living when Jesus returns, and under the earth, those who have died before Jesus returns. But there's more than just merely bending the knee. The fourth thing is every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This is a combination of what we find in Isaiah 45, as well as what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And then in Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the line between a believer and an unbeliever. A believer, in fact, bows, says Jesus is Lord and believes that God has raised him from the dead. But Paul here says something, again, quite striking. Not only will every knee bow, but every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
the people in Philippi are undergoing persecution. They're supposed to be one of the centers of the worship of Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And now Paul says, listen, Jesus is Lord. And one day, everyone will say, Jesus is Lord. That day has not yet come, but the day will come. The day will come when all creation will bow before the Lord Jesus and proclaim him as Lord. It doesn't mean they'll be saved. Okay, it doesn't mean that they will be converted. But it will, in fact, be an acknowledgement of what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And here we find, I think, Paul's second point in this hymn. It is, in fact, to reassure the Philippians. They're undergoing persecution. They believe that Jesus is Lord. But if Jesus is Lord, why are they suffering? Why are they being persecuted? Well, the time will come, Paul tells them, when everyone will acknowledge who Jesus is. But he is Lord right now. We acknowledge that. Unbelievers do not. But the time will come when they will. Now, this is wonderful. This is this, the, an early hymn. But you may say, Damon, uh, Paul skipped something, didn't he? He went you know, from the incarnation. He, he humbled himself. He was obedient to death, his humiliation, then he's exalted. But what about the resurrection? Um, It seems that Paul has completely forgotten about this. In reality, he has not. Okay, just, if you're writing a hymn, you don't have to say everything there is to say in one hymn. Okay, and Paul's point is humility, humiliation, exaltation. In chapter three, which we'll look at now, He deals with the resurrection. But before we get to chapter 3, just some thoughts. We've talked about this in the past. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus was a historical event. It actually happened in human history. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a list of those to whom Jesus appeared after he was resurrected. Secondly, and I've asked you this question before, and it's a very unfair question, which is more important to the Christian faith, the death of Jesus or his resurrection? It's unfair because in many ways it can't be answered. Jesus came into the world to give his life as a ransom. So which is more important? I think people tend to focus more on his death then they do the resurrection. But both are important. It is the resurrection that allows us to understand his death. Otherwise, his death is just a death. He died as a common criminal, as a slave. Paul wrote in Romans 14.9, For this very reason, Jesus, or Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Death and resurrection were both necessary. Think of it this way. There can be no Easter without Good Friday. And I think most would say, David, that's obvious. You can't have Easter if you don't have Good Friday. But also, there can be no Good Friday without Easter. And why do I say that? Because if there's no Easter, then Good Friday is not a Good Friday. It's a bad Friday. 
It's a day in which Jesus died, and that's it. End of story. But it is Easter that tells us, no, that actually was a good thing. That he died, he might be the Lord of the dead, and now on Easter he has been raised, he is the God of the living. He is Lord of the living. Also, resurrection shows us that Jesus is Lord. We see this in uh, the hymn. Uh, We see this also in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Question, does this mean before Easter? No, actually after Easter. That before that, Jesus was not Lord. He became Lord on Easter or sometime after during the exaltation? No, not at all. We hear the confession of Peter in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is, you are Lord, you are Christ. What we see in the resurrection is, in fact, the vindication. It is the proclamation. Jesus was Lord, but now in Easter, this this is proclaimed. He is vindicated. He is, in fact, Lord and Christ. Then resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, points to our future resurrection. The reality is, if we die one day we will be resurrected. We will be raised from the dead. And so in that sense, we share in the resurrection of Jesus. We share in that reality. We've talked about this before. I don't know that I've explained it adequately. But resurrection is something that has happened in a fallen world. But it is part of the journey from the original creation to the new creation. It is the beginning of redemption of all of creation. You see, Jesus was not simply raised from the dead. Because we have people in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead. Remember the story of the man who died and then they were going to bury, they were going to put him in a in the tomb and suddenly some bandits come down the road and so they throw him in the tomb that was the tomb of Elisha and the man was raised from the dead there are at least three incidents in which Jesus raised someone from the dead Uh, we have the daughter of Jairus we have the son of the widow of Nain and then we have Lazarus they were raised from the dead but they were not resurrected see If we think of Easter as, oh, Jesus came back to life, then then we can sort of drift off into what people say. Well, yes, Easter is a good reminder that that life is renewed, you know, that you have winter and then spring comes and the things that had died are now, in a sense, rejuvenated. No, no, no. Jesus was resurrected. It is the beginning of the new creation. The resurrection of Jesus proclaims to the whole universe to all things, that God is creator. He is the redeemer of all. Death has been defeated, and eternal life is now ours through Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is foundational to the Christian faith. 
I think most people would say the death of Jesus is foundational, that he died for our sins. That is true. But Paul wrote, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's the first thing, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's resurrection that is the foundation of what it means to be a child of God. In chapter 3 of Philippians, we find something similar to the hymn in chapter 2. We have Paul's story here of him emptying himself, of him being obedient and suffering, but then also we read of resurrection. First is the emptying. If you look at verses 7 and 8, let me just, before we do that, in the previous verses, he has talked about all the things that qualify him to be a good person and to get into heaven. If you look, um, he, he's, he's very explicit. I mean, he, he talks about the fact that he is a Jew, he's of the tribe of Benjamin, he's a Pharisee, all these different things. He has, he should have his ticket punched. He's, he's a shoe in to get into heaven. Verses 7 and 8. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for, whom, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul is renouncing both gifts and achievements to say, I'm a good person. He's like, no, that's, that's gone. What some people would say that's on the plus side, he now sees on the minus side is something that he gets rid of. And why are they lost? Why would he consider them lost? Because the alternative is far better. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord. Simply put, you can either know Christ or you can hang on to what you think qualifies you to get into heaven. The hymn we sang earlier, Rock of Ages, in my hand no price I bring. Empty hands. Okay. Simply to thy cross I cling. And Paul's like, okay, I have a choice here. I can either brag about what a great Jew I was, a Pharisee, all these things, or I can gain Christ. I can keep this and lose Christ or lose this and gain Christ. And he's like, it's, there's no question. He considers them lost that he might gain Christ. But what does it mean to gain Christ? Well, it's spelled out in a, a series of realities. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God and by faith. To gain Christ is to be found in Christ. What's the alternative? To not be found in Christ. To be found outside of Christ. If we're not found in Christ, then we are found in our own righteousness. And what does Isaiah tell us? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Either in Christ or in our righteousness, quote-unquote, which are filthy rags. You can either be in Christ or out of him. We can be found in him is to have his righteousness. See, if I'm found in myself, I have my righteousness, it's filthy rags. If 
But if I'm found in Christ, I have his righteousness. That when God the Father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And then there's the matter of obedience. Look at verse number nine. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I don't know if you think of it this way, but when we put our faith in Christ, we are being obedient. Acts chapter 17, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. When I say I am a sinner, I cannot save myself, I turn to Christ, I'm being obedient. God has commanded me to repent, and when I repent, I'm being obedient to him. Paul had repented and put his faith in Christ. And as a result, he now identifies with Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Four parts here. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know or experience the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. And I want to be resurrected. If you look at the structure, it's what we would call A-B-B-A. That is resurrection, suffering, suffering, resurrection. It comes full circle. For Paul to know Christ is seen in two areas. Being resurrected and suffering. Here is where resurrection comes into play. And here on Easter Sunday, now we can talk about resurrection in this passage. You would say, well, he skipped it in chapter 2. Again, you can't say everything that you want to in a hymn. But now he brings it up. He has not forgotten the critical area of resurrection. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. At first glance, someone might think, well, this is like Paul saying, I want this supernatural power. Um, I want to share in the power of Christ. But think a moment, what is in fact the power of the resurrection? It is the reality that since Christ was raised from the dead, and he was, salvation is possible. And, by the way, we are told that Christ did not raise himself from the dead, but God raised him from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead. Since Christ was raised from the dead, those who put their faith in him will be as well. Paul was so certain of the resurrection, in part because he met the resurrected Jesus. Remember when he was on the road to Damascus? He met the resurrected Jesus. He was accosted, he was confronted. He knew Jesus had been resurrected and that the resurrection of Jesus guaranteed his own. That's why resurrection, suffering, suffering, it's not to say that suffering is not bad. It's not painful. It can be. But it must be seen in the book, within the bookends of resurrection. And so there can, in fact, be joy in the midst of suffering. There can be rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Paul is not a masochist. He's been accused of that over the centuries, somehow reveling in suffering. Um, but he had a different perspective on suffering. 
Jesus suffered and was resurrected. One day we will be resurrected. So maybe in the meantime we will suffer. That's okay. Let me ask a question, a simple question. Do you believe that you will be raised from the dead? Do you believe that you will be resurrected with a new body? Because, see, that's the difference between Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Lazarus died later on. He still had an imperfect body. Jesus was raised with a transformed body. And one day we will be as well. But do you believe this? If no, if you say no, then you don't believe the scriptures. As Paul told the Corinthians, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So you say, yes, okay, David, I do believe in the resurrection. I will be resurrected. What is the basis of the resurrection? How do you know that you will be resurrected? What is the proof that you, in fact, will be resurrected? Paul would say it's because Jesus was resurrected. Jesus Christ, my Lord, was raised from the dead. He was resurrected, and one day I will be as well. If we believe that we will be resurrected, it should in fact change our orientation toward the future. This leads to something else that we're not as comfortable with. We might rejoice in resurrection, not so much the suffering part. Back in chapter 1, by the way, in Philippians, Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, that's great, okay? But also to suffer for him. That's not so great. That's not what we want to hear. For us, it sounds so foreign. We have uh, liberty in this country, and we have had for several centuries. But Paul writes this from, well, he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner in Rome. Um, he is suffering for Christ. Um, he knows what it means to suffer for the faith. I think he also knows he's going to die. If not by the hand of the executioner, he will die as all human beings do. But in the meantime, he is suffering. He is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. If you've ever suffered physical pain of any kind, I think the immediate reaction is to think of yourself, your pain. You can't think of anything else. You can't think of anyone else because it hurts so much. And yet Paul wants the Philippians who are now undergoing persecution, and he's a prisoner in chains, he's telling them, listen, this is a gift from God. We have been given the ability to suffer for Christ, to share in his sufferings. And so our focus should be on the Lord Jesus Christ and not ourselves in the midst of suffering. We share in his suffering and become like him in his death. When Paul says that he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, this does not make sense unless Paul says he is willing to suffer and to share in his suffering. And then he ends with resurrection again and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
the way this is written, it gives us a weird feeling that Paul isn't quite sure that maybe somehow, possibly, perhaps, and this isn't at all what he is saying. What he is saying is, in fact, he knows that there will be death, but he knows that there will also be resurrection. What he is saying is, we've got to die first, and then we can be resurrected. Okay? You die, and then you are resurrected. He is not doubting that this will happen. He, in fact, is affirming that it will. And then, in the resurrection, we will know Christ as we are known. Paul will go on to say, if you look at the next verse, in verse 12, not that I have already attained all this, okay? or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see, the Philippians were facing two factors that are, have the potential to take them away from the gospel. The first is, in fact, persecution. See, in the Roman system, everyone had to take a pinch of incense and put it on the fire, on the coals, and say, Caesar is Lord. And the Philippian believers would not do this. The Christians of that time would say, Jesus is Lord. So you don't do that, you're in trouble. There's persecution. And it's just a small thing. It's just a small thing to take a bit of incense and put it on the fire. I remember some years ago going to a Buddhist funeral. And as people went by the casket, they would take a pinch of incense and put it on the coals. And there was a Christian woman among us who had apparently been to Buddhist funerals before, and she's like, don't do the incense. Don't do the incense. It seems somewhat disrespectful. We're trying to honor this person who has died. If you're going to be a good citizen of the Roman Empire, you've got to say Caesar is Lord. And so persecution is a real problem. The other is that if they, in fact, could change their theology just a bit, they wouldn't have to be persecuted. If they could align themselves more with the people who are Jewish and not Christian, then the, the Romans would let them leave them alone. If, in fact, you wanted a hassle-free life, which I think is what most Americans want, you know, we don't think in terms of persecution. We think in terms of being bothered. So if you don't want to be bothered, then you just have to change your theology a bit. And Paul writes to the Philippians that, no, this is not the way. This is not the path. There is humbling of ourselves, emptying of ourselves, being found in Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you may, in fact, have to share in his sufferings. But that's okay because you, in fact, will share in his resurrection. Paul goes on to say, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's looking ahead. He's looking ahead. The suffering, the persecution, not wonderful, but seen in a correct perspective, 
it's, it's a small thing because one day we will be raised from the dead. The resurrection is such a huge thing. I want to do it justice somehow. The resurrection of Jesus is the critical event in human history. It is the turning point in human history. God created the world. Adam and Eve fell into sin. The project, if you wish, went off track. And God, through Abraham, began the process of redemption. Israel, you have the law, you have Moses, you have the prophets, all these things. And now it comes to the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus is raised from the dead, it's the first day of a new week. The the first week of creation, yeah, that fell because of Adam and Eve's sin. But now it's a new beginning. It's a new creation. Jesus wasn't simply resuscitated. It's not as though somehow, and you know, some people have argued this, that Jesus was put in a cold tomb and, you know, in the coldness, uh, he was able to heal a bit and then he was able to get out of the tomb. No, he was not simply resuscitated. You know, get the paddles, you know, jumpstart his heart. No, 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 he was transformed. This is the new creation. This is what we will be like when the Lord Jesus returns. Easter is everything. And it's not about Easter eggs or Easter bunnies or spring, you know, all these new things. It's about something brand new. It's the new creation. What are we going to be like after we are resurrected? Well, we're not completely sure, but we do have the Lord Jesus who is able to appear Apparently to walk through walls. And yet he bore the wounds. I've always been intrigued by that. If he had a perfect body, if he had a transformed body, why does he still have the scars, the wounds from his death? We're not told. But Easter is the decisive day. That's why we meet every Sunday. It is a decisive day in which new creation has begun. And it's made possible because Jesus paid for the old creation on Good Friday. And so with Paul, we should say, I want to know Christ. I want to be in Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. Let's pray together. Our Father, as is often the case, the things that just are too big for us to understand. We we tend to simplify and then lose something very important. Help us to remember that on this day, Jesus was not simply resuscitated, revived. He was transformed. It was the beginning of new creation. And one day, all of creation will be transformed because he gave his life. He shed his blood to redeem all creation. By your grace, may we not trust in ourselves that we're good people, we go to church, we do this, we do that. But like Paul, we say it's all loss, it's nothing, it's rubbish. 
The only one that matters is the Lord Jesus. And if it becomes necessary that we will suffer, then may we embrace that willingly. May we see it in its right perspective that compared to resurrection, it is a small thing. We want to be like Christ. We just don't want to suffer like he did. And yet that may be our calling. We find ourselves in difficult times. And in contrast to the past, where we imagined we knew how things were going to go, we really don't. We really are walking in a dark room. But you're there with us every step of the way. We pray for your wisdom and your grace. We would make the right decisions. We would not trust in ourselves, but be found in Christ. We thank you for this Easter Sunday. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his resurrection. May we keep this in mind in the coming days. We pray this through the resurrected Jesus and in his name. Amen.